last few weeks. Over the last few weeks, I've, I've started each uh, sermon with this quote. Uh, this quote says, it doesn't matter if the whole country decides that something wrong is something right. When the mob and the press and the whole world tell you to move, your job is to plant yourself like a tree beside the river of truth and tell the whole world, no, you move. Uh, I've shared this with you because as June is Pride Month across the world, uh, we find ourselves as Christians bombarded with a message that tells us that homosexuality is not a sin, uh, that it is love. And in fact, if you look at all the messaging around it nowadays, it, it actually is completely and utterly linked that homosexuality and love are the same. A lot of these messages you hear or see are, are positioned as if they're pro-love. Love wins out. Love can't be defeated. Let love shine. We stand for love. And I always kind of despise that because it's, it's the way beautiful lies work. Beautiful lies are never 100% false. The most effective lies take a little bit of truth and then they pervert it and twist it. And so as Christians, we're living in a society where more and more we are being told that if we think homosexuality, like the Word of God says, is not a sin, that we are hateful, that we're bigots, that we stand against love, and that we are the wrong and evil people. And so my hope for you over the last three weeks, my prayer for you, as we've been going through this, is twofold. One, that you will stand planted in the Word of God. Amen. Brothers and sisters, as Christians, we have to hold true, and we have to hold firm to the fact that the Word is our foundation. Yeah. It has become very trendy in our day and age to pick and choose what pieces of the Bible you want to live by and which ones you want to discard. But brothers and sisters, when we do that, we need to realize that we betray everything that the Word is. God presents the Word to us as His Word, which is perfect and infallible and without mistake. It is perfect for teaching and encouragement and rebuking and accountability. And the moment that we look at what is presented as the perfect word of God and say that any section of it is wrong or flawed, then why follow any of it? The moment you know that this document isn't written by the perfect, flawless God, or that that God himself is flawed, I would challenge you why you listen to any of it. Because basically then it's just one big lie. And so, brothers and sisters, be very careful in your lives so that as you are a Christian and as you learn the word, that you don't find yourself in a place where the pressure of the world tempts you to go, you know what? I'll hold to all of it except this one little piece. Because the moment you do that, the moment you start picking and choosing what you will listen to, you no longer are a submissive servant to the Almighty God. You yourself have become your own God, deciding what is truth and what is not. The second reason I want you to hold firm on this is to always remember that everything in this is about relationship. All of it is about relationship. Brothers and sisters, what I often find is Christians who cave on whether homosexuality is a sin or not are not normally driven by deep biblical exegesis. I don't normally find that they've gotten into the Greek, into the Latin, and they did unbelievable study, and they came away and went, oh my goodness. We've been wrong for thousands of years. This is not what it meant. Typically, here's what happens. Their child, or their friend, or their sibling, 
or someone that they deeply care about tells them that they are gay. And then the Christian is put into a place where they go, well, wait a minute. How can this be that this person that I have so much love for, so much respect for, so much passion for, how is it right that I can sit here and say that what they're doing is wrong? And not just kind of wrong, not like you're going to get your hand slapped wrong, but if you look at what the Word says, which we'll do today, the kind of wrong that puts you in opposition with God. The kind of wrong that says, if you continue in this and say it's right, there's no place for you in heaven. And it's typically because of that emotion that they are urged and led and tempted to go ahead and turn away from the word of God. Now, brothers and sisters, I get that. I absolutely get that. I have family members in my life that I deeply love and care about that have gone down this path of sin. Brothers and sisters, there's something you need to remember that when you choose those people over what the Word of God says, you haven't just chosen those people over the Word of God. You've chosen them over God. Right? Christianity is not just a philosophy. It's not a moral framework. The goal of this book is not to change your behaviors and make you the best you. It's not the goal. The goal of this book is to point you to the unbelievable God that loves you, that created you, that sacrificed for you, desires to have a life-changing relationship with you. That's the goal of this book. It's not for you to learn great philosophy and morality and become better. It's for you to be in the most loving and intimate relationship ever, and that is the relationship with our Father. And so, brothers and sisters, when we take those earthly relationships and for their progress and for their growth and for their comfort, turn our backs, not on just God's word, but Him, then we have told them which relationship is more important to us. And what we have told Him is, He is not number one on the list. And so, brothers and sisters, I encourage you to think about because many Christians in our, our, our modern society have been told this lie that you can still love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, but also disagree with all of them on a lot of different things. The problem with that is to disagree with God means you don't think he's perfect, which means you think he's a liar. It's a much more profound, it's a much more impactful thing that you are saying about that relationship. And brothers and sisters, the other thing I want you to be aware of as we dive into these things is what our goal is. This is probably pessimistic, but I don't think we're going to turn society on this. I don't think gay pride is going away. I don't think I will ever again live in America where the majority of people think homosexuality is a sin. In fact, I think over the next decades it will only become worse. I mean, we've already seen that in the midst of having this debate about whether homosexuality was a sin or not, we've already jumped past that to transgenderism. We now live in a world where you have, though a minority, a growing minority that thinks it's fine for you to tell your five-year-old little kid that they're not a boy, they're a girl, and start pumping them full of hormones. I don't know how we got there, but we're here. And let me just tell you the truth about sin, brothers and sisters. Our enemy never is satisfied. 
don't think there won't be something next. Don't think there won't be something further. Like it's funny, I have to be very honest with you, when I was younger and I would watch the videos of Elvis performing and would realize that when he first came onto the scene that there was this whole national push against him as being this sinful, terrible person. And I'm just like, today I listen to the lyrics and I'm like, that's, that's nothing. A hound dog, okay, ooh, that's, oh no. Blue suede shoes, don't let the children hear those lyrics. But I'll be real with you, I now understand. Because before that moment, our society had said, a man coming out on stage and dancing in that suggestive way and singing lyrics, though, on the surface aren't anything to bat an eyelash at. We all know what he's saying. The fear was, if that becomes okay, what's next? What's next after that? What's next after that? To the point nowadays, we no longer hide the message we're trying to share with you in our message. We just say it. Anybody had one of those moments where you're singing a song you used to sing as a child and realize, like, why was I allowed to sing this song? I never knew what this song was about. Oh, my goodness. This song is not what I thought it was about. Satan is very blatant what you want. And so the thing I also want to encourage you in is we don't fight fights because we think we'll win them. We fight them because they're right. I'll be real with you. I, I don't know that I will last at my corporate job for another decade. I am pretty sure within the next decade, maybe, maybe it'll be a little bit more, that my views on this particular topic will be so antiquated and out of date and so against the society that all it will take is one employee to retake this sermon, which will be on our website, play it for an HR department, and go, this is what he believes, and I'll get fired. And if you think I'm crazy for that, I think honestly the only reason it hasn't happened to me is because I'm in the state of Texas, and I'm for a company that typically has leaned a little bit more conservative in values. But you can actually, if you go do research, this has happened to hundreds of people already. I don't know what it would be like for my children. And so when I share this sermon with you, I don't share it so that you can become some social justice warrior and go decide that we're going to lead the charge to change America. Don't get me wrong, I'd love that. I just don't think it's going to happen. I share this with you, though, because you have a duty to your God, to your Savior, that even if we're going to lose the fight, we don't give up. We don't stand by God's side because... We think it makes us popular. We don't stand by God's side because we think it's what will be culturally appropriate. We stand by God's side because he is our creator, he is our Lord, he is our master, he is our savior. And because ultimately we know he speaks truth and he speaks love. And what I want to know our congregation has is the kind of boldness and strength that says, I don't care what this makes me look like to the world. If you think to be popular, I will betray my Savior. You don't know who I am. So today I want us to look at these passages and just really clearly look at what God's Word has to say. So if we follow through the past few weeks, we talked about hate. And just to sum up very quickly, we said this narrative of Christians being hateful against homosexuals, it doesn't hold any water. One, hate is not disagreeing on a topic. Hate is you despising somebody and making it your passion to bring pain to them. 
When you and I tell a homosexual that their lifestyle is sinful, that is not us hating them. That is us having a disagreement on what was right and what is wrong. Second, if we go into the word and we look at how God asks us to respond even to our enemies, not just those that we disagree with, but our very enemies, God goes, hate is never part of your journey. I want you to love your enemies. Amen. And so even if this disagreement were to put us at odds, even if it were to make us enemies, which I honestly don't even think it's big enough to do that, you and I still wouldn't be given the green light by God to inflict pain. We would be called by God to love those people, to care for them, to sacrifice for them, to show them that our God is love. The second week, we got a little deeper into that topic of love and said, well, what is it really? And love isn't just this positive emotion. It's not that I have good feelings towards you. It's not that when we encounter each other, I make you feel warm and fuzzy. That's not the type of love that the Bible is built upon. The Bible is built upon agape love, a powerful love, a love that is built on what is morally right and what is powerful and strong. It's the same kind of love that, yes, wipes away your tears and gives you compassion in your lowest moments, but it's the same kind of love that scolds you when you're wrong, disciplines you when you're going the wrong way, and is willing to put itself in the midst of fire to bring you out. It's not a weak love. It's a love that is willing to do what is difficult if that thing benefits you. That's the kind of love that God wants us to have. Our society has thrown that love out for the kind of love that goes, I'm just here to make you feel good about you. Even if everything you're doing right now is dumb and stupid, I'm going to tell you you're doing a great job. Because I want to make you feel warm and fuzzy inside. That's why we're at odds with the culture of love in the United States, because that love has no value to God. Because to him, that's not really love. For you, me to make you feel good about doing the wrong thing, God would closer relate that to hate. What kind of sick person watches you on a path of destruction and smiles and waves at you as you do that? And then says that's loving. Not the kind of love that God gives us. And so today, I want to still put up our Bibles and go into where the specific verses are that God talks about the sin of homosexuality. So we're going to start in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your own brethren. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor the effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit our God. Amen. In this one statement, you are given the paradox of our God. Amen. In the first part, he looks at it and goes, if you do these things, you have no place in the kingdom. 
So, like, brothers and sisters, let's just be very clear about what God says the punishment for these actions are. This isn't that you're off base. This isn't that you're wrong. This isn't that you fall out of God's blessing. If you choose these things as your lifestyle, you do not have a place in heaven. And many people go, well, isn't that harsh? Isn't that, isn't that too much? Let me give you two things to think about. One, there is a very big difference in the eyes of God between passionate, in the moment, unthought out sin and intentional, habitual sin. We, all of us, no matter how righteous we become in our lives, no matter how close in the journey we get to him, no matter how great we are listening to the Holy Spirit, every single one of us will continue to make sins in our lives. The hope is that what happens is the majority of those are those ones where our flesh appears in a moment. And when we're not thinking, when we're not planning, when we're rife with emotion, that is when we fall and do something wrong and dumb and I can tell you, that's always a great sign to me how much I need a God. There have been so many times in my life where I've had the intention to actually do right. I've actually been trying to improve a situation, and I'm such a fool that even with that intention, I will do something wrong. Ever been in one of those moments where you're like, I wish everybody knew this was not what my heart intended? I realize now as I sit back with 2020 vision that that was a dumb thing to do and it has made everything worse. And I can see how you looking at it now think that it was intended for evil. Oh, I just wish someone knew my heart and knew that was not the goal. Right? God tells us those kind of sins will continually show up in our lives. But what he is much more concerned with because of what it says about our relationship with him is when you and I go, you say this is wrong, God. I say it is right. You say not to do it. I will do it. I will do it repeatedly. And in fact, I don't even think it's wrong. In those moments, you no longer are simply disagreeing with God about that issue anymore. You are not disagreeing that he is the perfect and almighty God who knows all. And that's why that becomes a bigger issue. This disagreement doesn't just retain itself to one topic. It now has come to the very character of who you are and who God is. Second issue, a very quick side note. I, I, so many people get caught up on how could a good God send anybody to hell. And brothers and sisters, I really don't see it that confusing. God has presented himself to humanity. He has said, I love you. I've made you. I desire to be with you. And if you will follow me, I will take you to paradise with me. However, you have free choice. You have free will. I will not make you serve me. I will not make you follow me. I will not make you love me. You have to choose that. And so those that choose love and choose God and choose to follow him, they end up in a place where that is so perfectly experienced. A place where we fully taste his love. A place where we are completely and utterly engulfed in his compassion and his power and his awesomeness. And there's no longer a sin that taints any of it. It's the pure experience of God. It's beautiful. 
At the same time, there's a group of people, though, even though God has offered them the same thing, they go, no, I don't want you. I don't want you. I don't want your rules. I don't want your morality. I don't want you in my life. I want to lead myself. I want to lead the way. Well, that's exactly what hell is. Hell is a place where God isn't. It's just people didn't think through when you have a place that God's not. That means you have a place that there is no love, that there is no peace, there is no patience, there is no kindness, there is no gentleness, there's no comfort. So you throw God out, but when you do that, guess what? He takes with him everything he is. And what is left is not a place I think anyone wants to be. But to be honest with you, I find that unbelievably fair. Come with me and I give you all I am. Tell me to leave and I leave with everything I have. That's heaven and hell. He's simply giving you exactly what you've asked for. Now, brothers and sisters, as we look at this, and I, I called this out a little bit last week, but I, I don't want it to be missed in your head. Look at that whole list. We have a tendency as Christians to only look at the certain things we want to in that list. The fornicators. The modern church just doesn't care anymore. If a man and a woman are coming to church and they're having sex before they're married, we don't address it anymore. We don't talk about it. It's right here in this exact same list. But we've decided we don't really want to address that one because it's so prominent now. It might offend and make might feel might make people feel bad. But guess what? Our job at church is not to pick and choose what we share based on what makes you feel good. Our job is to preach the word of God as he gave it to us. And right there next to homosexuality is fornication. Either fornicators or idolaters, which is anybody who puts anything above God. Which I think if we're honest, it's a lot more people than we think. When I say idolatry today, you tend to think of, well, nobody has a statue in their house they worship. No, but I know people who worship their house, who worship their car, who worship the way they look, who worship their dress, who worship their wife, who worship their respect, who worship their legacy, who worship their reputation, who would do anything and everything possible to keep that the pinnacle of their life. It may not be carved of wood or gold, but it is an idol that they worship. nor adulterers, nor the effeminate, nor homosexual, nor thieves, nor the covetous. Which of us has not seen somebody else with something and gone, I wish I had that? Or gone, how did they get that? I'm smarter than them. I work harder than them. I'm a better person than them. If anybody should have got that, it should have been me. Now you're in that list. Drunkards, revilers, swindlers, none of these will inherit the kingdom. Amen. But then I love the second point he makes. But such were some of you. And this gets to the heart of why we talk about this. It's the heart of why we can't let these messages disappear. When we live in a society that looks at a sin and says it's no longer sin, then we're ruining the very first point of the entry of the gospel. 
first thing every single one of us has to know when it comes to our relationship with God is I need to be saved. I don't earn anything on my own. If I were given what my talent and my ability and my goodness could earn, that would be hell. I need to be saved. And so the more that Satan tricks us, the more that he perverts things, the more that he tells us, you're not broken. You're not sick. You're not wrong. You're not sinful. What is that? The more that we believe that, the less we realize we need to be saved. That's why we have to stand against this thing of trying to recategorize what God calls evil as right. Now, brothers and sisters, I want you to see a couple things. I know many of you that when you will talk to people about the Bible saying that homosexuality is a sin, we've entered a new age that is very different. Now, why it's very different is, is it used to be that the majority of homosexuals had no desire to be considered Christians. Why would they? It's very clear. The Bible says this is sin. I live like that. I have no desire to have both those labels. Why would I want to be a Christian homosexual? Your morality code and your God stand against everything I am. I, I don't want to be in your group. But we now stand in a new day where you have people who go, I actually don't think this Bible is accurate. I don't actually think your God is 100% perfect. But I would like to be considered a homosexual Christian. And how dare you say that I can't be a Christian? You don't know where I stand. You don't know my heart. And it's true. I don't know your heart. But I also know that when you want to join Christianity, which has a framework and a morality and values, it doesn't make sense for you, the outsider, to redefine what those are. And so there have spurned up these, these, these arguments that say, well, honestly, the Christians who think homosexuality is a sin, they don't understand the Bible. They're misinterpreting it. And so I just want to walk you through some of these verses so that we can see there is no misinterpretation here. And this is not one of those topics that God is not particularly clear on. Now let's be honest with that. There are some things in the Bible that are hard to understand. Find me the passages that perfectly explain how the Holy Trinity works. I can find a lot of passages that talk about the relationship of God the Father with Jesus the Son and the Holy Spirit that lives in us. But diagramming that out perfectly for you? Can't do I can find you passages that talk about what heaven is like and some things that we will experience there, but I also can't walk you through what a day there will be like. There's a lot of things that are not fully explained. And so what some people do is they know this and they go, see, just like you can't explain the Trinity, just like you can't fully explain heaven, homosexuality is one of those topics that there's many different interpretations of. No, brothers and sisters, there are some things that God has left open, and there are some he is very clear on. To say that he is not clear on this, if you don't think he's clear on this, I don't know how you would take anything in Scripture as solid fact. So in Leviticus 20.13, if a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. A couple key things here. One, the word used is not just sin, it's an abomination. 
This is the strongest word you God uses in the Bible to describe an action that stands opposed to him. God is not mincing words about what this is. This is an act that is evil. This is an act that is vile. This is an act that he has no room for. And in Israel, the nation of God, the punishment was death. Now, for some of us, we go, my goodness, that's, wow, that's harsh. Well, the reality, brothers and sisters, is most Old Testament law is much harsher than what we're used to. Now, some will ask why. Well, that sermon's not today. Let me just give you a couple things to think about. One, remember, this law is not the law of all the world. Meaning God did not tell Israelites to go outside the kingdom of God and kill homosexuals. God said, if you want to be part of my kingdom, and you are going to be an Israelite, and you are going to worship in my temple, and you are going to be part of this nation, these are our laws which you will abide by. And if you choose to be those things and choose to go against those laws, these are the repercussions. If you don't like them, if you don't want to be an Israelite, you're free to go. But you have signed up for this, and this is how we live. The second thing, brothers and sisters, to remember is that Israel is very different than the United States. There was no president of Israel. There was God. The people, on a regular basis, did not commune just with a middleman of God. They communed with God. The people he told this to are the ones who, with their very eyes, saw him part the Red Sea. The people he told this to are the very ones that watched the plagues come upon Egypt out of his power and might. These people had all the evidence in front of their faces of who their God was and what he had done for them. And he said, if you want to follow me, if you want to be part of my family, if you want to be part of my kingdom, this is how we live. And the reason, brothers and sisters, he was so severe on these things is he knew that how quickly sin spreads. How quickly when we tolerate just a little bit of wrong, we say it's not wrong, we keep pushing the boundaries, we keep pushing the edges, we keep pushing. And God needed Israel, which was the nation that was going to build up the family that Jesus, the Messiah, would come from. He needed them to stay pure needed them to stay on the path because through them, Christ was coming. Now, does this mean you and I should be killing gays? No. You and I are not Israelites. We do not live in Old Testament Israel. There is no longer the Israel that was built around the temple law. That nation no longer exists. Additionally, when we look at Old Testament law, we must always remember that while the implication of how you do things may have changed, the morality stays the same. So no, we no longer put people to death for this, but it doesn't mean that the action itself wasn't wrong. Just like we don't cut the hands off people who steal, that doesn't mean that stealing is good now. Right? The punishments and the laws have changed because we're not Israelites in the nation of Israel in temple law, but the morality that that law was built upon still stands. 
Second, it's not in just one or two places. People like to say that when you look at homosexuality, God never anticipated, which, just start there. If your view of God is that God could not anticipate what 2019 would be like, then you and I do not worship the same God. If you think right now God is sitting there going, wow, I did not expect that to happen. I didn't see that happening. Then obviously you don't believe in a perfect, all-knowing, omnipresent, omnipotent God who created everything and sees all. You may just believe in a superpowered being who's a little bit more than you. But I've heard people say, well, God never anticipated the type of homosexuality that we see in America. What he was talking about was that vile, pagan worship homosexuality, not the pure love homosexuality that you see today. Brothers and sisters, that's just ridiculous. And to be clear, God covers it in all bases. So not only does he say you shouldn't have homosexual sex, but look what he says here. A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. Whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. What is he saying? He's saying cross-dressing, transvestites, transgenderism. No. I'm not even talking about the sexual act anymore. I'm simply talking about you denying what God made you. Because to be honest, brothers and sisters, that's what we have to realize this fight really goes back to. This isn't even just about action anymore. It's not even just about sexual sin. It's about this is what God created. God made them male and female. God created them for sex and marriage. God created them in this way, and our world goes, no. We could care less how he made them. We could care less what his intentions are. We will pervert it and use it the way we want to. That's what the fight's about. And so even beyond the action of sexual sin, God made clear here, no, it's bigger than just the sexual sin part. It's this you denying what I made you. You denying what you were created as. Now, I want to show you this one because this is one I regularly hear thrown right back at me after I point to these verses. I will always have some amazing biblical theologian who will go, well, so you're, so you're one of those literal interpreters of the Bible. Well, then what about this? You shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You not, shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed. Nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of materials. And normally what follows after this is, so let me ask you, Luke, do you not wear polyester blends? Is that shirt you're wearing right now 100% cotton? Seems like you're not a little interpreter of the word. Seems like you're okay throwing this one out. Which again, I would tell you exactly what we just talked about. This is what? This is a law for the nation of Israel. If you were an Israelite living in temple times. And the morality behind it still exists. What was God trying to show through the way his people dressed, through the way they farmed, and through the way they worked? Israel is a holy and pure nation. It is a nation set aside from the rest of the world for the purposes of God. And so even though it may seem silly to us that it would matter what kind of clothes you wear, God was saying it is so important for me to show that you're pure. I'd like you to even show it in little ways. I'd like it to be seen in the way you farm. I'd like it to be seen in the way you dress. I'd like it to be seen in the way you manage your animals. I'd like it to be seen in the way you raise your kids. I'd like it to be seen in everything you do. But the Israelites honor purity. 
Now, brothers and sisters, again, does this mean today that you're all sinners and I am too because we're wearing blends? No. It does mean that if we were Israelites in the temple time, we would have tried to honor this. And it still means to us, even today, while we no longer have the specific implementation of this law, we understand that the morality behind it, the desire in all ways, shapes, and forms to show that we are holy and set apart from God is a valuable thing. That's why, as your pastor, I would encourage you to think about the way you dress. One of my biggest pet peeves is how some of these pastors dress so trendy. They're sitting there telling you, don't care what the world has to say. However, look at me, I'm wearing everything that's in GQ this month. I'm not necessarily saying Christians should have bad style. Okay? I'm not saying you have to dress ugly. I mean, clearly, look at me. I mean, I know, I look like I walked off a movie set. But what I'm saying is when it becomes so unbelievably clear to people that with my clothes and with my dress, I'm trying to purvey this message of how worldly and cool I am. It's kind of weird for a Christian. Especially someone who would tell you in their actions and in their beliefs that I don't care what the world thinks of me. I'm not trying to be trendy. I don't really care about being accepted by the culture. Now I see the eyes. Everybody's looking around at their seatmates, seeing how everybody's dressed right now. <laughs> what I'm saying is the heart of this still exists, even though the implementation no longer is there. God was saying, be pure. Just like you'd like us to be pure today. Look at me with uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1. First Timothy chapter 1, verses 6 through 11, it says, For some men, strained from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or about the matters which they make confident assertions. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and the profane, for those who kill their fathers and mothers for murderers, and immoral men, and homosexuals, and kidnappers, and liars, and perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. What I want you to see here is, one, brothers and sisters, the point of the law was never just to isolate certain sinners. The point of the law was to make all of us realize we're sinners. The point of the law was to make every single one of us realize, I can't do this on my own. If this is the standard by which I must live to earn perfection, I fail. I fail every day. Because only when you have that kind of humility, then do you fall upon your knees and go, God, I have faith in you and I need you to save me. I need you to help me get there because I can't do it. The second thing I want you to see is people act like homosexuality is barely addressed in the Bible. It's in like four different places in the Old Testament. It's like in four different places in the New Testament. And everywhere you look, whether pre-law, in the nation of Israel, outside of the nation of Israel, in the New Testament, in the era of the church, wherever you look, it's described exactly the same way. As an abomination that does not allow you to be part of the kingdom. 
so when people like to pick and choose which verses they're going to look at and act like the Bible isn't clear, if the Bible isn't clear on this, I don't know what it's clear on. God is very clear with where he stands on this. One last place I want to look. If you look at Isaiah chapter 56, it says this, verses 1 through 6. It says, Thus says the Lord, Preserve justice and do righteousness. For my salvation is about to come and my righteousness to be revealed. How blessed is the man who does this, and the son of man who takes hold of him, who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For this says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath and choose what pleases me, hold fast my covenant. To them I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial, and a name better than that than what the sons of daughters. I will give them an everlasting name, which will not be cut off. Amen. Brothers and sisters, what I want you to see is, though God calls all these things sin, he makes it clear throughout his word that none of these are enough to permanently keep you from him. If you are willing if you are willing to acknowledge your sin, that you run the wrong way, that you love him, that you trust him, and that he died for you, then he will always forgive. Yeah. In that passage, it talks about eunuchs. That's an important thing for us to call out on this topic because eunuchs often were eunuchs that were forced to be so. They were men who were typically forcibly castrated and forcibly pushed into a homosexual lifestyle so that they could take care of the harem of a king. And the king would have no concerns or worries that that eunuch would be taking sexual advantage of his women. God calls to those men who went through unbelievable pain, unbelievable abuse, and probably lived very wicked lifestyles. And he says, even you, if you come to me and you call me Lord, I'll give you a new name. Amen. I will write a new name for you that will be recognized in heaven, that will be recognized by me. And so, brothers and sisters, I'll, I'll finish this series, and I apologize for going so long, but it's one that we've got to stay firm on. The reason we do this is not for moral superiority. The reason we go to these words and we study them and we learn to talk to them and we learn to call this out is not so I can say I'm better than you. It's not so I can say my lifestyle is superior to yours. It's not even so we can change the whole nation. And so we can do the very mission that God has given us, which is to go into the world, to go into all nations, preach the gospel, to baptize in Jesus' name, and to teach what he has taught us. And brothers and sisters, if that mission doesn't start with us revealing people's sin and their need to be saved, then 
and they will never understand what Jesus did for them. They will never understand the love that he showed and the sacrifice on that cross. I was reading uh, an interview uh, with one of my favorite pastors, John MacArthur, and I thought he said it very well. He said it is more significant, far more significant, to rescue one sinner from hell through the gospel than it is to turn a nation to temporal morality. We may never win how America deems this. I don't really care about that. I care about that God is going to put people into your life. God is going to put people in your path that this particular sin has grabbed hold of them. This particular sin is rampant in their life, and God is going to give you the opportunity to share the amazing gospel, the amazing story of who Jesus Christ is with them. And in those moments, brothers and sisters, what you will need is both the love that cares enough about them to overcome your own discomfort, a love that is strong enough to say, even though I know this could be awkward, even though I know this isn't politically correct, even though I know this can make me look bad in the eyes of society, I love you enough that I'm going to share this truth with you. With the hope that it pierces your heart, with the hope that it opens your eyes, and with the hope that it leads you to being just like me, the disgusting sinner that fell upon his knees and was washed in the blood of Christ and now has been crowned crowned with his righteousness and his glory. Not because of who I am, but because of who he is. That's our hope. That's our prayer. And that's why we plant ourselves by this truth. Don't lose the grip on the word. And don't let the Lord push you away Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your amazing love. A love, Father, that is so powerful that it breaks through all the darkness that surrounds our souls. A love, Father, that keeps on fighting, no matter how difficult, no matter how brutal, no matter how treacherous the path around us is. A love, Father, that has pulled us out of the deepest, darkest, and ugliest places, every single one of us, and has washed us clean. Father, I pray that that love is a fire burning bright in our souls. And I pray that each and every person in this room, Father, is willing to throw away their reputation to the world and to go to share your gospel. To go to share you with those who are lost. Father, as you tell us, you have given us a spirit, not of fear, but of power, of love, and of self-discipline. Let that spirit shine through us each and every day, Father. In the wonderful, loving, and forgiving name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.